Good morning. It's good to be back with you. Shall we spend a moment in prayer? Father God, we thank you as we come to your word, recognizing that it was inspired by you, that it is so useful to us in every aspect of our lives. In fact, it really carries your life within its words. And so we thank you for this, and we ask that you would lead us and guide us as we spend time studying it. We also pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be active as we listen, bringing to light things that need to be addressed and changed, but also encouraging us and giving us hope for the future. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's spend a moment thinking about relationships, and in particular, your crucial, uh, significant relationships, perhaps your relationship with your spouse or your parents, your children, work colleagues, um, friends as well. These relationships are all very significant and important because when these relationships are strong and healthy, they become a tremendous source of blessing to us. But when they are broken and dysfunctional, my word, they really can turn our lives into a living hell. So our relationships can either be a blessing or a curse and this is a great incentive to make sure that we get our relationships right. But there's another incentive that I'd like to talk about today, one that is perhaps, perhaps a little bit buried and not so obvious because I don't think we really grasp just how important relationships are in God's scheme of things. So think of it this way. Paul has just been exhorting the Ephesians to live productive lives. And so he says, make use, make best use of your time because the days are evil. In other words, you're going to get carried away by this flow of evil unless you're being intentional, unless you're being productive and swimming against the stream. He also says, live discerning lives. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he goes on to teach about relationships, all kinds of relationships, the husband and wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, and relationships at work. And he, he spends the rest of chapter 5 going forward into chapter 6 talking about these things. And I wonder if you can see the connection and the significance to being productive and discerning. Because what he's saying is that if you want to live a productive life, you need to make sure that you get your relationships right. This is a practical outworking of living a productive life, of living a wise and discerning life. Think of it for a moment. We often evaluate our productivity by the number of meetings that we attend or perhaps the amount of time we spend at the office, the number of dollars that we've earned, the number of people saved, the number of orphans fed, the number of cult, um, contacts cultivated. Whatever it is, we, we have certain ways of measuring whether we're measuring up, whether we're being productive. But Paul implies that a measure of a person's productivity and discernment in God's eyes is the quality of their relationships. You can be productive in all of these other areas, but failure in relationships will bring it all to nothing. And isn't it family relationships that usually suffer at the expense of our so-called hyper-productivity? 
how foolish we are when we allow that to happen and how lacking in discernment. Now, I know that as I'm talking to you and even talking to myself, that we all want to live a life that pleases God. We all want to arrive in heaven for, and for God to say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. But maybe what you're thinking in your mind right now is, wow, if relationships are so significant in measuring the significance of my life and my productivity, that's a real snag because relationships are hard. And we all carry around different issues and different baggage. How on earth are we going to make sure that we can overcome these things? Because relationships really are complex. They're difficult sometimes. And Paul is not implying that they aren't difficult. But the lovely thing about the Bible, the wonderful thing about Paul, is that it is intensely practical. And so today we're just going to start off by thinking about one step that we can make towards good, productive relationships. And it starts at this point. The biggest threat to any relationship, folks, is self-centeredness. We need to be real this morning because when you think of the needle on the dial of your life, it is firmly pointed at self-centeredness. We have no difficulty evaluating everything through the lens of selfishness, of self-interest. What does this mean to me? How is it going to affect me? How is it going to hurt me? How is it going to benefit me? Me, me, me. Self-centeredness. We need to be honest about this and all of us need to recognize it is a real problem. And that's why the most important commandment in the Bible is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, it's directing you away from an inward focus to an outward focus. God knows more than anything what our weakness is. Self-centeredness. The question is, how do we defeat self-centeredness? And this is where we're going to draw a proposition out of today's text, which goes as follows. We overcome self-centeredness by a Holy Spirit-empowered attitude of submission. And I get this proposition from Ephesians 5 verses 15 to 21. We're going to read it just now. But we're going to unpack this proposition under three headings. The definition of submission, the motivation for submission, and the power for submission. The definition, the motivation, and the power. Let's read Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Please turn there in your Bibles if, if you're able to, or even hit pause and go and grab your Bible. So important to um, have the Bible in your hands as we, as we look at it. So chapter 5, verse 15 to 21. We read it last week. We're going to read it again today. Look carefully then how you walk. Be discerning. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what we can see here is that Paul is saying, live a discerning life, live a productive life, live a spirit-filled life, and then he comes to this idea of mutual submission before he gives us a practical outworking of a productive and a discerning life in a relationship of husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, and in our context that would be in your work life. So, submission. What is it? Read verse 21 again. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And this is a general requirement that applies to all relationships. That's why it starts at the beginning of his teaching on the marriage relationship, the parent-child relationship, and work relationships. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. I submit to you, you submit to me. So if you're a boss, you need to submit to your workers. If you're a worker, you need to submit to your boss. If you're a husband, submit to your wife. If you're a wife, submit to your husband, and so on. But maybe you're asking yourself, well, for example, how does a boss, a person in authority, submit to his workers? What does this mutual submission look like? And why should there be a principle of mutual submission? Let's deal with that first. Why is there a principle of mutual submission? It's because Paul is making it very clear to us that a boss is as valuable as his worker. A husband is as valuable as his wife. Uh, a father is as valuable as his child. There is equality in relationships. God looks at these people, whoever they are, and he attaches the same value to them. That's why he says that we should be mutually submissive. submissive. But what does it mean to be submissive? And if you look at the Greek word, it means literally to arrange under. So if I am being submissive to Gail, it means that I am subordinating my desires, my dreams, my rights to Gail's. And by the same token, because it's mutual submission, she is subordinating hers to mine. So I need to reject self-centeredness and work for the good of Gail. And when I do that, I'm showing her honor and respect. I'm showing that I consider her to be equal to me. And folks, even those with positions, beg your pardon, positions of responsibility and authority can submit to those under them by treating those under them as valuable, by working for their good. And so, for example, if you're a business owner, making sure that the business exists not just for you and for your own reward, but also for those that you employ as well. So... That's the definition of submission. We arrange our needs and desires under the those of others. And mutual submission means that I do it for you and you do it for me. This is part of the key to unlocking this problem of self-centeredness. So that's the definition of submission. Let's dive in now to the motivation for submission. Paul says here, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you look at different translations of the Bible, you'll see that that word reverence is sometimes translated as fear, out of fear for Christ. 
And when you look at a Bible translation and a particular Greek word is translated using different English words, it usually means that the translators are battling to find an English word that captures the meaning of the Greek word. So, so what does it mean to submit to one another out of fear or out of reverence for Christ? The best, um, the, the, the best explanation of this I found once again with our friend Snodgrass, um, his, his uh, tr um, commentary on, on Ephesians. He says, it's the reverence we feel that comes from the knowledge that Christ is both a loving Savior and a coming judge. So tied up in there is obviously the respect and also an element of, of fear. So let's have a look at the second one. We are to submit out of reverence for Christ as a coming judge. And I'll try and illustrate this um, using the relationship that I had at one time with Dave Eden. So at that time, I was an associate pastor of Dave's and he was the lead pastor at Harvest. When it came to leading the church and his relationship with me, I knew that I would need to give an account to God one day for every rebellious attitude or action that I ever had against Dave. Because Christ was going to come as a judge one day, um, not to judge me on whether I was going to heaven or not, but to, to have a chat about my attitudes and my relationship with Dave. And so I made sure that if he had to make, make a decision, that I would submit myself to that and we'd work together. But in the same process, Dave was also doing the same thing out of reverence for Christ coming as a judge one day. Because he knew that he was going to have to give an account to God for whether he had had my best interests at heart. Whether he was making sure that he'd created an environment for me to grow and to reach my full potential as a Christian leader. And of course he did do that. And so we were both submitting out of reverence for Christ as a coming judge. Let's move on now to the next motivation. The first one is to submit out of reverence for Christ as a coming judge. But if that was the only motivation, I think it would be a little bit incomplete and probably a bit unhealthy because we don't want to be dominated by fear. So let's take a look at the second motivation, which is out of reverence for Christ as a coming Savior. And, and folks, we are getting to the heart of the matter now. So to explain this point, I'm going to need to give a little bit of backstory. Um, so please listen carefully, because if you get this, it will literally change your life. So here goes. Every human being has a desperate need we're all looking for righteousness in our relationships because God has wired us as relational beings. He is a relational God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who'd spent an eternity satisfied in his relationships with himself. And he has created us in his image as relational beings. So we have this desperate need to be in right relationship with others. But what do I mean by that? Well, we want to be acceptable. We want people to approve of us. We want them to like us. We want them to love us. And we want to be worthy in their eyes. Let me give you a picture of this. 
when a man proposes to a woman, it's a very frightening thing. I can remember the day that I did it to Gail. In fact, I was, I was so worried about it that afterwards she said, Ian, was, was that you um, actually asking me to, to marry you? Was that a proposal? Because I was, I was quite frightened. And so when a man proposes to a woman and she says, yes, I want to marry you, he has been declared righteous by her. It's a wonderful feeling if you ever get to experience it. It means that he measures up, he's acceptable, he's worthy of, of love, he's desirable, she likes him. Maybe you attend a job interview. So they've, they've studied your CV and they've checked out the references that you've given, maybe former employers, former work colleagues. Now they spend a bit of time chatting to you and at the end of it they say, we want to take you on. We'd love to have you on our team. We, we think you're going to fit in here. You're just what we wanted. That seal of righteousness. Or maybe you've just arrived at a social gathering with your dad. And you can tell <laughs> that he just can't wait to introduce you to his friends and his work colleagues. John, this is my son, Ian. He's the one I've chatted about so often. That seal of approval, of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, your greatest and your deepest need is to be righteous and acceptable, to be lovable and to be worthy. And we will move heaven and earth to be in right standing with God and significant other people. But why do we feel this lack of righteousness? Why do we spend our lives trying to make sure that we have it, trying to work for it, trying to earn it, as though we aren't lovable or acceptable or worthy. The news is that it's because we aren't. The Bible tells us that mankind lost its right standing with God and with one another because something fundamental broke down in our relationship with God. And it was caused by rebellion. Adam and Eve were in right standing with God, right in the beginning. God dwelt with them. He, he walked with them. He talked with them in the cool of the evening. They were naked and unashamed because they, they didn't have anything. That was a picture of there being nothing between them and God, nothing to break that right standing in their relationship with God. And so the set was seen for them, uh, the scene was set, I beg your pardon, for them to enjoy God for the rest of eternity. But there was just one requirement. They weren't to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by giving this command, God was saying, I created you so I know what's good for you and I know what's evil for you. Therefore, I get to tell you what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. But Adam didn't want to have to rely on God telling him that what was good and what was evil. He wanted to decide for himself. And so do you and me. We want to do our own thing without having to depend on God. And we want to be independent. And the prophet Isaiah wrote, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord God laid on Christ, talking about Christ, the iniquity of us all. Christ died a horrible death on the cross simply because you and I wanted to turn our own way, to do things our own way. And every man, woman and child 
born on the earth wants to do that. And I hope that you can see that that's rebellion. And we've all done it. We can all think of times when we've decided to do, do something that God defines as evil. And so we deliberately, deliberately leave him out of it. And we just go ahead and do it. And God makes it clear in the Bible that if we've done that just once, and we all have, let's face it, we lose our right standing with God. It's like when a, a husband is unfaithful to his wife. And of course, as soon as we did that, as soon as we rebelled against God, look at the effect that it had. Sin and death came into this beautiful world that God had created, and it destroyed our right standing with one another. Cain killed Abel because sin and death had come into the world. No longer right standing in relationships with God or with one another. And brothers and sisters, that is why we always have the sense of unrighteousness. And so we continuously work to earn righteousness with God and others. To be acceptable, to be worthy, to be lovable. And we do it in many different ways. I can remember years ago working with a contractor. At that time he was, he was a young man in his, in his late 30s. Um, we were building a dam and he bought a whole lot of amazing equipment. He had a 50-ton excavator. It was the first one in the whole country. And so at the end of the dam, we were just standing on the wall. Uh, we had a great time building this dam. I really enjoyed it. We were standing on the wall, and I, and I was just saying to him, you must be really proud of this, of this work, because I was, I was feeling proud of it as well. He said, you know what, Ian, I, I am proud, but I just wish that my dad was here to see it. And more importantly, I wish he was here to see this amazing equipment that I've bought. And so that was just a little glimpse into his heart. It's a glimpse into all of our hearts. There he was, still trying to measure up to a father who had already passed away by achieving things, by buying things, by doing things. And we all do it. But sadly, the Bible tells us that once you have rebelled, you actually can't earn right standing with God ever again. And that's why we never actually get that sense of right standing. Um, no matter what we do, something fundamental to the relationship has broken down and reconciliation is not possible on the basis of your record, of the things that you do or don't do. Your record will always have black marks, instances of rebellion. You're never going to be put right with God on the basis of that CV, on the basis of that record. But what, God, what if God were to take that record of yours, that imperfect record, tear it up, throw it away, and replace it with Christ's perfect record? What if he were to say, I now judge your righteousness on the basis of Christ's record? You are acceptable. You are lovable. You are worthy. You are righteous. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, if you think of him, I think he had better reasons than you and I <laughs> to rely on his record for righteousness. I mean, he was probably the second most influential person in the entire history of mankind after Jesus Christ. But this is what he wrote in Philippians 3, 7-9. He said, But whatever gain I had, 
whatever gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, literally dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it comes. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Don't look for a righteousness that comes from your own record, from the approval of others, from what you have or haven't done. Look for one that comes from God, the one we received as a free gift through faith. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21. He says that God has entrusted to him the message of reconciliation. Then he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, here it is, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, Christ was punished for our rebellion so that in Christ, through faith, we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be put in right standing with God. And of course, this changes everything. And it, it has huge implications for this whole subject of submission. For, it, for a start, it means that because I have been put in right standing with God, it is now also possible for me to be put in right standing with other people because that fell away as a result of the rebellion. But it has another implication for, for submission because if you are always working to earn your own righteousness, You'll always be self-centered. Everything you do, and even the good things, folks, will be motivated by self-interest. There won't be any love in it because it'll be to do with self-love. But if you all are already saved, if you all are already declared righteous in God's sight, then you're free to do things out of genuine love rather than a desire to earn righteousness. And so think, think for something that you've done, think of something that you've done for someone else or for another organization, maybe for the church, maybe for your round table club. You worked really hard at it. And at the end of it, nobody acknowledges what you've done. Nobody thanks you, which is wrong, admittedly. But you know, if you understand that your righteousness, your right standing, your acceptability before God is based on what Christ has done and that you're already acceptable, then suddenly you don't need to be thanked because it wasn't actually about you. It was about God and something that you did for Him. Christ's example also provides us with a perfect example of submission and it is hugely motivating. Let's frame this explanation with the words of rights and needs. We had a massive need and Jesus had divine rights. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm reading from Philippians 2 here, 6 to 9. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul tells us that Jesus was in essence the same as God. Further, he had the same rights as God, and yet he set aside his rights and became a servant. The universe was Jesus' handiwork, and yet he surrendered his hands to a splintered cross. Why? He did it because we desperately needed a sinless man to take our punishment. Where would we be if Jesus had held on to his own rights? Where would we be if he had not submitted himself to us and ordered our rights and needs above his? So the best way, folks, to revere him as a loving savior is to follow his example of submission and to develop the same attitude of submission that Christ displayed. And it sets us free, folks. When we know that we are in right standing with God, we can do all of the things that Paul has been talking about here. What did he say in Ephesians 4, verse 2? He said that we need to treat one another with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Folks, unless you are sure of your identity, unless you know that you are already acceptable to God, you won't have it in you to be humble. You won't have it in you to be gentle with someone else. You won't have it in you to be patient and to bear with this, their sin and their folly. It's just not going to happen. And let's face it, folks, in the Christian body, we can be real pains in the backside. <laughs> it's the same in any close family. And it's the same in church relationships. We can, we can be hurtful to one another. We can be difficult. We can be awkward because of the stuff that we're dealing with. And each one of us needs to know that we are acceptable to God. We're loved by Him. We're valuable to Him if we're going to have that firm foundation on which to bear with the sins and the folly of others, eager to maintain the unity of peace in the bond of the Spirit. So, the definition of submission we've had, the motivation for submission, Christ as a coming judge, and also Christ as a coming Savior. Lastly, the power for submission. Now, we've been talking about the example of Christ and I could stand here and say to you, listen guys, just follow the example of Christ. And that advice would be absolutely useless. Because we've all had it, haven't we? Maybe you're someone who's, who's had older brothers and sisters. And the teachers are saying, why aren't you like Johnny? Or why aren't you like Eddie? You know, why can't you follow his good example? We need more than the power of a good example to bring real change. We need power for submission. Where do we find it? Folks, we find it in being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what, why Paul puts in verse 19 there, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And last time we talked about what that is, what it looks like, what it is, and what it isn't. Folks, if we're going to overcome self-centeredness, we need to have a firm understanding of our standing in Christ, and then we need to, on a daily basis, as we discussed the last time, say, Father God, please fill me up 
you do it to me. I need the power. I need the strength. And I'm going to do what it takes to be obedient to you. It's a partnership. I know that you come in with so much more than, than my share of what I bring to the partnership. Please bring it in. In a sense, being filled with the Spirit is like the clutch in the drivetrain between the engine and the wheels. If the clutch is not engaged, doesn't matter how powerful the engine is, it's not going to transfer power to the wheels. <coughs> I beg your pardon. But as we, submit to, as we submit to God and we say, come and fill me with your Holy Spirit and hand over control to the Holy Spirit, we have the power to submit to other people. And so we've spoken in general terms now about the power of good relationships how we can take a step towards good relationships and in the weeks ahead we're going to look at that far more specifically in the case of marriage in the case of parents and children and in the case of work relationships as well so just as a closing challenge i would say start taking steps what sort of step does god want you to take this week towards a submissive relationship with a significant other whoever it happens to be it could be a work um, a work colleague it could be a friend what are you going to do to submit to them and reflect on the power of it it's the holy spirit in you and the foundation of it which is the fact that you have been declared righteous with god that just needs to be outworked into your other significant relationships shall we pray Father God, as we stand before you, we recognize that relationships are so important. We just know it because our lives are miserable when they're not right and they can be so blessed when they are. And Father, I thank you that you have made it possible for us to be in right standing with you so that we can be in right standing with other people as well. And I, I just ask, Father God, that you would help every person today even as they were just reflecting on what steps they need to take to be submissive in their relationships. I ask that you would give them the power to do that. I ask that you would give them wisdom to know how to do it. And I also pray that you would give them enlightenment to know what to do. We ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, folks. We're going to be praying for you in the week ahead and look forward to your relationships bearing fruit to the honor and the praise of God. Goodbye for now.